It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You know, I'd love to see the OJs perform at the Super Bowl one year, the halftime show. I think that'd be so much fun. I love the OJs. In any event, uh, there are a lot of conversations going on in America right now, meaning this week, because of the nature of holidays and the nature of people being back from school. A couple, of, a lot of things happening. You have a lot of kids, young people, freshmen, sophomores in college, that are back home for the Christmas holiday. And a lot of them are having their parents foot the bill for a very expensive university education. And the parents are basically asking the student, how's it going? And a lot of students are thinking, well, wait a minute. Uh, I really can't tell the truth to my parents about how much money I'm actually wasting of theirs because I'm spending a lot of time partying and goofing off. Instead of studying philosophy, that's one set of conversations that's going on. Then you have another set of conversations where teenagers, 16 years old, 17 years old, they're seeing a group of relatives for Christmas and New Year's or whatever holidays that are appropriate for your religious beliefs are. And they're seeing this group of relatives that they only see once a year. And Cousin Kathy or Cousin Howie will say to them, well, hey, Sammy, where are you thinking about going to college? And that is the worst question in the world for a teenager because they're already under enough pressure. And so now they have to, uh, in order to uh, essentially please someone that they're seeing once a year, they have to come up with a college or university name that's recognizable enough that this person gives them the reaction of, oh, that's a good school, and then moves on. And that's a lot of pressure for a, a young person. And yet these are the conversations that are going on all over the country right now. And so much of these conversations have to do with the price, the price of college tuition, the price of room and board, the price of books, and what you get for that Price. Now, I went to New York University, uh, uh, took a lot of classes at Tisch, which is the film school there. And every single person I knew that graduated from Tisch, the uh, prestigious NYU film school, said to me the same thing, which is they had a decent experience there. But if they just took the amount of money that they spent on their film school tuition and instead made a movie on their own, they not only would have learned a lot more about filmmaking, 
but they would have been much farther along in their careers than they were when they graduated from film school. And I'm sure that can be said of a number of other collegiate areas of study as well. Someone who has been very vocal on this is Sahaj Sharda. He's an anti-monopoly activist, an Ivy League law student, a college pricing critic, and the author of The College Cartel. He's uh, kind enough to join us now live from India, where it's actually a decent time of day. Sahaj, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank. Thanks so much for having me on, and uh, fantastic intro. I think you framed all of the issues exactly correctly. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, what sparked your activism on this? When did you become uh, somebody that was speaking out on the price of college? Yeah, so, you know, it's actually really funny because, um, you know, the last couple of holiday seasons, uh, I feel like every time I've gone back, there, there's been a new scandal about either the elite colleges or colleges in general that's always, you know, somehow present at the dinner table. And so a couple of years ago, the really big one was the Varsity Blues scandal, where a lot of famous celebrities, kids, um, and other, you know, really wealthy people were essentially using an admissions consultant named Rick Singer to bribe the admissions offices at a, at a wide variety of elite colleges from USC to Georgetown, where I went. Um, and, you know, the, the way I sort of like started studying what went wrong with their colleges is when I was, I think, a, a junior or senior at Georgetown, the Varsity Blues scandal erupted across the front pages um, of all the major newspapers. And one of the people who was caught up in this scandal was actually a classmate of mine. Now, this wasn't someone I knew super well, but obviously when something like that happens in, in a close proximity like campus, you, know, you hear all sorts of things. And I wanted to take a step back and really think about, well, what is going on that wealthy people will risk going to jail, will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars, um, in order to get their kids into these schools? Mm. Like, what is it about the juice that's worth this amount of squeeze and why has the market become so dysfunctional? You didn't see this frequency of scandal in the past. You certainly didn't see it in the, in the 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s. It's somehow a more modern phenomenon starting in the late 80s, 90s, 2000s, and certainly since, where there's just been this fever pitch about getting into those very prestigious schools, I think, that you mentioned that will, uh, that will placate you know, your aunt or uncle who will, who will think, oh, that's a really nice school. And so there's been this desperate, desperate um, drive to get into these few very prestigious colleges that has somehow intensified in the last few years. And so I wanted to take a step back and really study what happened. Why did that happen? And, you know, as I started to study that more and more, what I realized is this story and the college debt story, the college pricing story are all really interconnected. It's all just really one story, which is as the demand for these prestigious schools went up, and as the supply was kept constrained um, through what I call cartel tactics, you know, what ended up happening is all of this dysfunction, which is you had more and more competition amongst students, more and more pressure amongst young people, and increasingly higher and higher tuition fees that have just become unsustainable and frankly unaffordable for the vast majority of Americans. Really, that's it's so interesting. So in your book, you chronicle how between 1994 and 2021, the University of Pennsylvania's endowment, the cash that the college is essentially sitting on, 
it increased from 1.5 billion to 20.5 billion. That's uh, not from tuition. That's from donations, investments, whatever else they have. That's a growth of 1,301 percent in less than 30 years. Over that same period, Cornell's endowment grew by 1,014 percent. Brown's endowment grew by 1,035 percent. Duke's endowment grew by 1,717%. Now, a lot of folks will see all the cash that these colleges and universities have and think, wait a minute, why do they need to keep raising prices? Why not simply draw down on that endowment? So you alluded to cartel-like tactics Break this down for us, uh, you know, Sahaj. Explain to us why college tuition has gone up so precipitously. doesn't seem to matter whether it's a recession or boom times for the economy. It seems to only go in one direction while the endowments are also going up. So, so this is precisely the right question. I think it is actually a paradox that you have to grapple with for a second because on the one hand, the colleges say that they're nonprofits, they're charities, they're committed to an educational mission. And, you know, they use all sorts of language to lead you to this conclusion. They say things like financial aid instead of price discounting um, you know, or price discrimination. And then they use these types of words like endowments and, um, you know, and they, and they are legally registered as not-for-profit entities. And so, you know, whatever you donate to them is, is tax deductible. And for all of these reasons, I think, you know, Traditionally, American society has taken the view that these are charitable institutions, or at least they're institutions that are imbued with a higher purpose. And I think increasingly, when you really study what's happened at these campuses, exactly what you said, the endowment's ballooning, and yet at the same time, price is getting more and more and more extreme across the board. It's not just one or two schools. It's all of them and all the time. It's been a secular trend for the last 20, 30 years. When you look at all of that together, which is that they have more money and so therefore should be able to afford to lower prices more than ever before, and yet prices are higher than ever before, you can only walk away with one conclusion, which is that these aren't necessarily institutions that are imbued with that higher purpose. Instead, they're merely commercial entities. And you know the, the, the form of commerciality that they exhibit is a little bit different because they are organized as not-for-profits, but... Nonetheless, there are deeply commercial motives that are that are at the heart and that are the beating heart of these secular trends of rising prices over time. And, you know, and, and I think that just that unlock, that that sort of mental leap is how you can then think about how we solve this problem, which has been, you know, a place where we've gotten stuck for so many years. Tell me why you and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with. Uh, Sahaj Sharda, his book is the the College Cartel. Tell me why you refer to it as a cartel. A lot of people would say, even if your uh, analysis is correct, that they these guys just act like commercial businesses rather than nonprofits. That these are the prices that people are willing to pay for a degree from a place like Brown or Duke or uh, University of Pennsylvania or Harvard. What are they doing that is cartel like? So if you think about like the paradigmatic cartels that you're probably familiar with, things like OPEC, which is you know the the oil cartel, or you know the drug cartels um, that that are so problematic in our societies, you know all of them have essentially a very similar logic, which is they 
operate in markets with inelastic demand, and I know I'm using some jargon. Let me explain what that means. What that essentially means is that if the price goes up a little bit, very few people make the decision not to buy. Instead, they kind of grumble, but they make the purchase anyway. So if you think about you know, filling a tank of gas, you know, especially before electric vehicles, if the price of gas went up, yeah, it would kind of suck, but you would still make that purchase because you have to get to work. Um, and you know, what, what increasingly has happened is that the college degree has exhibited these tendencies. There's been a very inelastic demand, which is that no matter how much is charged, whether it's because of subsidies or student loans or, or other types of, of, of federal guarantees, you know, people have been willing to pay. And so it's been this market with very inelastic demand. Now, what about the supply side? Now, this is where the cartels really figure out how to take maximal advantage of this type of demand. And so what traditionally they do, what OPEC does or what the drug cartels do, is they try to limit supply as much as possible. Because what happens then is that there's less competition between the suppliers of the good and much more competition for the people who demand the good to compete for what limited allocation exists. And so, you know, you can think about this in the oil market um, when we've had these oil crises or price spikes and people are, you know, sort of rationing oil um, or, or, or carpooling more, things like this. They're having to compete more for that product. On, on the other hand, in colleges, I think it's much more clear. You have these schools that are rejecting 97, 98% of students, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Yale. Um, and it's getting so extreme that sometimes these schools don't even publish their acceptance rate anymore. And so you can clearly see that there's a massive amount of demand. It's quite inelastic to price. And what the schools are doing is instead of growing enrollments, instead of, you know, if you're Harvard and say you have $56 billion in your endowment, instead of building a Harvard two or a Harvard three and trying to steal all of Yale students and all of Princeton students, the schools have more or less stagnated their enrollment growth, um, whereby essentially enrollments have been flat since, since the 1980s, while demand has absolutely tremendously spiked. And, if, you know, there's economic analyses where if the schools were – it's not about student quality because if the students were – if the schools are maintaining student quality since the 1990s, their enrollments would have tripled or doubled, something mm. in that order of magnitude. And instead, we've seen it be completely flat while prices have doubled or tripled. And so I think this is the fundamental story, which is the schools have somehow figured out a way that all of them, each and every single one that's within this sort of prestigious band, has figured out a way – to maintain their competitive balance as not expanding, which is against what the laws of economics are telling you, which is that you know the, the laws of capitalism are if the price of something goes up, then people should rush into that market to produce more of it. That's how the market's supposed to work. That's not what's happening here. And so there's something that's actually very anti-market that's happening, and it's this cartel structure that the schools have structured. I'm happy to talk more about the mechanics of how that works if you'd like. Well, you know, I'm also interested in what can be done about this prospectively? What can people do? What are you trying to do to kind of break up this college cartel? So, so I think you know, there, there's two types of responses that I think are, are super important and I think are actually possible. And so one is on the demand side, which is, you know, I think students need to think more deeply about why exactly do I want to go to these schools? Is it just to uh, impress my aunt or uncle, like I think you alluded to right. at the beginning, is it to actually signal some sort of base competence? Is it because I don't have a better plan or I don't know what I'm actually interested in? I mean, the point you made about you know the Tisch students who may or may not have been better off just taking that money and trying to make their own movie, I think is a, is a point well taken. 
Um, but unfortunately, there, there are limits to that type of demand substitution, which is that, um, you know, essentially, if you want to be a doctor or you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be in one of these super credentialed um, professions, then essentially you have to go through a very specific set of institutions in order to achieve those goals. Um, you know, you have these credentialing mechanisms that basically exclude anyone who doesn't do that. And so I think for people who want to work in, uh, you know, more fluid parts of the economy, whether they want to be creators um, in digital media, whether they want to do other types of things that are maybe more on the frontier, you know, that type of demand substitution might be a good idea. If you, if you know that that's what you want to do, maybe you don't need to go to one of these prestigious colleges. But for others, I think there is going to be a tremendous amount of lock-in that continues to exist, which brings us to the supply side. And I think, you know, there are a lot of things that are just common sense, bipartisan policies that can be done here that are going to be tremendously popular no matter which party you're in. So you mentioned how wealthy the endowments have gotten. Um, you know, the, the Trump administration, to, to President Trump's credit, uh, tried to install an endowment tax on the universities that only kicked in if you had an endowment per student that was very, very large. And so one way in which a university could escape paying that endowment tax is by just enrolling more students. Uh, because in that sense, your, your endowment per student criteria would actually lower below the threshold and you could avoid paying the tax. And so that would be sort of an output expansionary type of tax. The issue with the, with the Trump endowment tax was that it was very, very small. It was, I think, like 1.7% on all endowment gains. So if an endowment made a dollar, they only paid a, a penny or two pennies out of that dollar um, in taxes, which is you know, not enough to meaningfully deter uh, the very lucrative racket they have going on by limiting output, by limiting the number of seats, by limiting the number of students that they teach. I think if we ratcheted up that rate, the market would naturally resolve. The cartel would break under this type of uh, you know, tax pressure. Um, other things we can do is, and things that I've advocated in the past, is you know, for the antitrust authorities, for people at the FTC, like Chairwoman Lena Khan, for people at the DOJ, like uh, Mr. Jonathan Cantor, to investigate these schools and figure out how exactly they're colluding to keep each from expanding. And, you know, I think there's been a tremendous amount of reporting in recent weeks and months uh, that's pointing to some sort of weird relationship that the elite universities have with U.S. News and World Report, the major college uh -huh. ranking system. Um, and so the argument I make in my book, actually, is that the way that they've been able to enforce this scarcity is by having U.S. News and World Report essentially you know, de-rank anyone who tries to expand too much. <laughs> and by doing that, essentially, uh, they've, they've structured this cartel where if you, it's in your best interest if you want to be ranked well, which is why students want to go in the first place, to not expand the number of seats that you have. And so I think, you know, this type of relationship could deeply be investigated. I think there would be a very strong antitrust yeah. no. that you could find I, I, I agree with you. I, I think this is uh, really uh, terrific. I hope people check out your website and uh, check out the book. Uh, the book is called The College Cartel. Sahaj, I got to run, uh, but hopefully we can chat again. Yes, thanks so much for having me. People can check out his website, breakthecartel.com, breakthecartel.com. Comments, questions, thoughts, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 